We're currently going to be looking at two gifts this morning. The first gift will be um, <coughs> not being mentioned as much as others, but still being important. Now, not the catchiest title, but you'll get the drift of it um, in a few minutes. We're looking at a character who doesn't get much press, but just as important as anybody else. Now, I've always believed and encouraged what is technically, technically called the, the priesthood of all believers. Now, that's, that's a, a, a posh phrase. What it means, uh, in God's sight, it isn't the person at the front who's more important than Fred Bloggs in the congregation. Um, you don't know this, but because, um, because I'm always nervous about where to park, I'm normally here quite early, often in that car park by, by quarter to ten, um, and about ten-ish, time and time again, um, I see Fish downstairs, and he has a smile, a handshake, and a warm welcome for everyone who comes. And I think that's just as important. I also think it's just as important for whoever cleans the toilets, whoever does the admin, who does the shopping, all that type of thing. So first of all, we're going to be looking at the character of Joseph. I showed you the photograph of the, the six grandchildren earlier, one grandson, Caleb, and he, he um, sent a video round a few days ago of their nativity, and he, he was Joseph. Now, to be fair, he didn't have to do much. All he had to do was walk around the school hall two or three times. But I did notice in his carpenter's pouch, he had real tools, not children's hammer, saw, screwdriver. His dad, our son, is quite practical. And how it got through the health and safety of that, <laughs> that, that school, I don't know. But he had real, sharp, genuine tools in his, um, in his apron, I suppose um, you'd call it. I think the truth is that quite often it's the women in the Bible who get overlooked. Um, and so it's not often you say it's the bloke who gets overlooked. And I don't remember hearing a sermon about this Joseph, and I couldn't think of any song except, except some trashy, sentimental rubbish which actually mentioned Joseph. Um, maybe someone can put me right later. And then the, the second gift that we're going to be looking at is the gift that the angel gives to Joseph, the gift of the good news of Mary's pregnancy. Now, often it's the shepherds, plural, um, who talk to the... Um, often the angels, plural, who talk to the shepherds that get the publicity at Christmas time. But this is the angel who, who speaks to Joseph in a dream. Again, I can't remember a sermon um, on this angel, um, but it's a major theme. Years ago, I read a book by Billy Graham called Angels. Um, I didn't keep it. I wish I had. I can't remember what it said. And I noticed this year, at least in the stamps that we, the second-class stamps that we bought, it features an angel with the words, Oh, hear the angels sing. Now, Sheila, my wife, tells me that's a, a song. I can't place it myself, and perhaps someone can tell me later what the song is. So this morning, then, we'll be looking at Joseph and the Angel. Now, it sounds a bit like an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, but it won't be. Now, I've just realised I forgot to bring the clicker up the front. So if you don't mind, uh, can you sort of, at least one person be paying attention? It may not be uh, completely in sync, but there, there are sort of a, a bit of a, a framework coming up, um, but it, we'll see how it goes. Joseph first. What do we know about Joseph? 
Joseph clearly was uh, the husband of Mary, but not the biological father of Jesus. And this is made really clear in the reading we had earlier. Let me remind you of part of Matthew 1, verse 18. Um, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, um, sorry, verse before, um, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And a couple of verses later, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. Now, I don't know anything about the original language um, of the Bible, um, and I don't know if it's the NIV being coy or not, but this is clearly a plain reference to sex. I don't have a problem with that, but I've been fascinated to know um, what, what it was in the original. But why is this important? It's important, I think, because the world needs to know that Jesus was not only and merely a man, a good man, as many religions would say. He was God's son, the son of God. He wasn't Joseph's biological um, uh, uh, son. He was a stepson, although I think Joseph treated him as if he was. He was God's son. And Joseph, the carpenter, is mentioned mostly with respect to the uh, events surrounding Jesus' birth, flight to Egypt, and return to Galilee. The other main uh, reference, and we read it just a moment ago, was from Luke. And I noticed that although Joseph is not, is not mentioned by name here, he does, in fact, refer to his parents. And you probably know this already, but if you are looking very carefully, you may have noticed something quite interesting. Mary calls Joseph your father, calls Jesus your father, small f. However, Jesus gently corrects her when he says, didn't you know that I had to be my father's capital F house? It's a small print like that sometimes matters in the Bible because Jesus wasn't Joseph's son. As far as I can work out, um, that's one of the last things we read about him. So what happened to Joseph? He's not being um, mentioned as being around when Jesus began his public ministry, and I think he's probably conspicuous by his absence. I think maybe he died before Jesus reveals himself to the world, but we don't know anything uh, about the circumstances of his death. But and I hope that I'm not reading too much into it, there's a, a tantalising verse which I've been giving a little bit of thought to. When Jesus was eight days old, Mary and Joseph, as was the custom, took Jesus uh, to the temple to be circumcised. And an elderly man, Simeon, spoke about it. Listen to Luke 2, 34 to 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, note that, this child is destined to cause the, failing, the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul also. So Simeon here prophesied that a sword would pierce Mary's soul concerning Jesus, but Simeon said nothing about Joseph. I wonder, might this be an indication that Joseph would not be around to see Jesus rejected and crucified? I don't know. I'll leave that thought with you. Also, of course, on the cross, Jesus refers to uh, Mary, his mother, and no reference to his father. Had he been there, I imagine that he would have said something. 
Finally, by way of introduction, Joseph went on to father at least six more children, naturally and biologically this time, namely James, another Joseph, Simon, Judas, not the infamous one, and at least two girls. But what can we take away from the life of Joseph? Well, I think quite a lot. Listen again to Matthew 1, verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, in those days, it's likely that um, Mary and Joseph were quite young when they were betrothed. Now, betrothed was a far stronger and legal arrangement than any engagement is nowadays. That's why it talks about divorce, because you can't divorce anybody nowadays if you're simply engaged. And girls were often as young as 12 or 13, and boys just a, a year or, or two older when they became betrothed or engaged. It says pledged um, in the NIV. Although only engaged, Joseph was considered to be Mary's husband um, and she was considered to be his wife. And though the couple were not living together, it was a, a binding contract, unlike a modern day engagement, entered into in front of witnesses, which could only be ended by death, divorce or sexual unfaithfulness. After about a year or so of engagement, the female, by now the, the ripe old age of 14 or 15, would leave her parents' home and go to live with her husband in a public ceremony as outlined in Matthew 25, which we're not going to read today. Matthew 1 says Joseph was a righteous man. There are not many people in the Bible who are called righteous. Only nine are named as righteous. Now, there's lots of references to righteous people, but only nine are actually named themselves. And I think the word righteousness must refer not only to, to what people see, but to what goes on inside. Joseph, quite rightly, assumed that Mary had been unfaithful to him, he therefore felt unable to take the engagement onto the next stage, but he didn't want to be harsh. He could, in those days, quite legally and rightly, have made a, a public display of his indignation um, by taking Mary in front of the law court and making an example of her, possibly even leading to her being stoned to death. What's more, Joseph could have profited by, uh, financially by divorcing uh, Mary publicly. He had every right to claim her parents' dowry and any other assets that she had brought into this arrangement. Stuff her, so to speak. But he didn't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. I've been thinking, I'm not claiming to be righteous, but I've been, an example came back to me this week. Um, when I was a, I've been a teacher for a few years, and I was teaching in a comprehensive school in Kent, um, and um, I was the new head of department, and I was replacing a very good head of department. She had been excellent, and she was popular, and quite rightly, she had got promotion to another school, to, to another job. And she was a hard act to follow, and she was. She was a really good um, person. I'm still in touch with her um, now. 
In my department, there's another lady, probably 20 years older than me, and she made it quite clear that nothing I did could come up to my predecessor's standard. I could do, I could do no rights. This other lady was in charge of assessment in the school. And in due course, a really important document about assessment was going to go home to, to, to parents, governors, teachers, pupils, everything. And um, probably that day, and I happened to notice on the front page there was a massive spelling mistake. It was hiding in plain sight. The thing had been proofread, I've got no doubt, but this was so big that nobody had noticed it. And I wasn't sure what to do. I could have done nothing, um, in which case she would have been humiliated the following day. She wouldn't have lost her job. It would be very difficult for her. I could have um, gone up to her and said, in professional language, you stupid woman, call yourself an English teacher. Why have you let this go? I wouldn't have worded it like that, I hasten to add. But I thought about it, and I, I, I then engineered, within minutes, a situation in which I just was going to talk to her about something. And I said, casually, in passing, oh, by the way, there's a little typo in this. Any chance that you could, you could correct it? She was so grateful for that, that, that fact that I didn't make a mountain out of a molehill. From that day onwards, I could do no wrong. <laughs> um, a soft answer can turn away wrath, can't it? There's no doubt that this was a big deal for Joseph, but I would like to suggest that his concern for the law went deeper than the letter of the law, and he decided that he didn't need to humiliate um, this young lady who he had a thought, thought of probably offended by uh, a one-night stand. He preferred to divorce her quietly. Frankly, divorce was no great issue for an Israelite man. He simply needed uh, to give his wife uh, or his betrothed uh, a bill of divorce in front of two witnesses and send her away. What's more, um, Jewish and Roman law both demanded that a man divorce his, his betrothed or wife if she were found to be unfaithful. In fact, it's stronger than that. The Roman law actually treated a husband who failed to divorce an unfaithful wife as a, a pandera, nowadays we call it a pimp, in other words, a man who arranges for someone else to satisfy his sexual needs. I think there's more to this than meets the eye. He knew that he wasn't the father of the child, but because Joseph was a righteous man, he could not bear the thought of shaming her. He would already have felt shamed, and by not divorcing her, he put his own reputation at risk, because now people might assume that he had got her pregnant, and so therefore his reputation was at stake for the rest of his life but his concern was not for his own shame, but for Mary's potential shame. And surely this can apply to us too. Although Joseph was a godly and upright and righteous man, he, such, he suffers much difficulty and stress in this situation. Christians, even good Christians, are not exempt from, from suffering and trials. When I was here a few months ago, I mentioned a lovely uh, Christian family in our church with three daughters, and the now 19-year-old had been trying continually to end her life, and that has continued up to 10, 10 days ago. Quite often she's been in secure accommodation. She's not now. Bad things happen to good, good families. Because Joseph loved Mary so deeply, he decided to simply divorce her quietly. So Joseph dealt with the sin as he saw it, but didn't make 
a mountain out of a molehill. And I wonder if Mary loved him all the more for that, I don't know. And, of course, it was only after Joseph made this gracious decision that the Lord appeared to him in a dream and explained what was what. And I think the order is important. Joseph proved himself to be a righteous man before God explains what had really happened and before God trusts him with the care of a remarkable baby. And perhaps the same applies today. Perhaps we need to, to focus on becoming righteous before God will grant us responsibility. Now, I know, of course, none of us will ever be 100% righteous, and some of us would consider ourselves to be fortunate to get on the double figures of the righteousness scale if there were such a thing. But there's no harm in trying with the Holy Spirit's help. Before we leave Joseph, when he woke from his dream, what did he do? He did as he was told. And that was before he was married. So, so Joseph would... From, from, sorry, my wife won't be watching this online, I don't think. <laughs> so Joseph would from now on act as Jesus' earthly father, a bit like a foster father. And then that leaves him with just one thing to do, to name the child. And I would like to think that naming the child is a final um, way to prove that he was considered Jesus to be his own. Interestingly, Jesus was apparently a fairly common name in those days. I don't, I'm not a massive football follower, but I must have been watching Master Day a year or two ago, and I noticed one of the players had Jesus written on the back of his shirt. Um, must have been his surname, mustn't it? I was, I was hoping he would score a miraculous goal, <laughs> but, but I don't think it's happened. But Jesus was quite a common name. I looked up this week on the ONS website for common names in Britain, the last year, for 2002, of course, and Lily, who apparently was the most common name last year, and the most common boy's name really surprised me. Does anybody want any ideas? Noah. I don't know... I don't think I know any Noahs, one or two Noahs, but not, babe, not young. But in a, in a few years' time, there's going to be a glut of Noahs um, go, going through, uh, through the system. My age, John is as common as muck. Uh, in, in our church, um, you've heard of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. We could go on. Um, there's lo loads of Johns in our church. There would have been pressure on, on Joseph to choose a family name, maybe himself, or his father's name, which was Jacob. But I think that God's choice is such a, a common name when he could have chosen something unique and unusual. Suggests that, to my mind, that Jesus came in a way that could be identified with the, the, average, the average Noah, you say. He came to be with us. He was like one of us. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. So, Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man, he acted rightly, and he did as he was told. Lessons for us all. Let's move on to the angel in this account, but let's lay the foundations first. Nowadays, the culture, I think, is to think of angels as pretty and chubby, often, often girls or, or babies dressed in white, with wings, maybe playing a, a harp, uh, as we established in the all-age bit earlier. That's certainly not a, a biblical representation of it. Now, 
I didn't know much about angels, so I did a little bit of research. And I've got a concordance at home, which helped me no end. 273 references to angels in the Bible. But what I found most interesting was out of 66 books in the Bible, 34 mention angels, which is far more than um, I thought and um, far, far more references than some of the things that we, we looked at in church sometimes. So certainly worth spending a bit of time this morning. It seems that angels were created by God to live forever and were present when God created the world. They do not marry, <clears throat> but are wise and intelligent and take an interest in the affairs of the world. They are spiritual beings, but not to be worshipped. There's a little uh, verse in Revelation when John is just about to kneel down and worship an angel. And the angel said, don't, get up, don't worship me. We're, um, we're not to be worshipped. Angels are too numerous to count. They can express emotions. They have their own will. And most angels stay faithful to God. But more importantly for us this morning, angels are messengers. And of course, in this morning's passage, the angel is a messenger as well. But we're not here to check. I've, I've done my homework. We're here to learn from the Bible. So this angel, like others, was a messenger. And what a message he delivers. In fact, two messages. As Joseph sleeps, the angel comes and says in Matthew 1, verse 20, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, normally these don't be afraid messages uh, occur uh, in, when an angel suddenly and unexpectedly appears in front of someone. But that can't quite be the case this time because Joseph um, was asleep. So I think it refers probably more to the message that is being delivered. I imagine that Joseph's predicament was very much on his mind as he slept. It certainly would have been on mine. And I, I further imagine that things seemed pretty helpless as far as he was concerned. But the message from the angel was there's no reason to feel hopeless. The angel reminded Joseph that what was happening was simply a fulfilment of God's word as found in the prophet Isaiah. As, as a good Jew, he would be very familiar with what it says in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was the angel's way of saying to Joseph, you're right where God wants you to be. You may not like it, but this is a God thing. The angel shared a message of encouragement. And this definitely applies to us today. Perhaps there's somebody here this morning who's in a tough place and you pray to be released from it, but that hasn't happened and is unlikely to happen. Maybe you're, you're right where God wants you to be. You might not like it, but this is a God thing. If that's you, then you're not alone. I've been there. And I think that every honest believer who's been a Christian for more than a few minutes has been there and might be there today. And there's no sin in that. Life isn't fair, is it? Even for Christians, maybe especially for Christians. Some things are simply wrong and unfair. That, that family I mentioned who are going through all sorts of anguish at the moment. Being a believer doesn't, unfortunately, give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. Some things are simply 
beyond our control. And when life seems to be out of control, then we need encouragement. We need to hear that, that we're not alone, that we're not forgotten, that God cares. And this is a message of encouragement that Joseph receives from the angel. Life had probably been quite good for him until recently, and he doesn't seem to have done anything to deserve to be putting in this dilemma. He'd found a wife, or potential wife, like all good Jewish males were expected to. His proposal was accepted, and they were planning their, their new life together. And then this happens. God understands, but God didn't change anything. Instead, there's a message of encouragement. And although Joseph was going to take the least painful route to ending the relationship, God sent an angel to reveal another option. And that option was to stay put and trust God. That's what I would call tough love. But whoever said that following Jesus was always going to be easy, that's what happened to the best of Jesus' followers. In the New Testament, even the great Apostle Paul didn't get the um, immunity that he would like. He, he literally didn't get the get-out-of-jail-free card, as I'm pretty sure that he was executed. But he also had a very specific problem that simply wouldn't go away. He did everything right. He talked about the thorn in the flesh. He prayed about it. He didn't like it, but he was right where God wanted him to be. And he also received a message of encouragement. He prayed to be released from it. It didn't happen. And what was the message of encouragement? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God revealed to Paul another option. God understood Paul's situation, but didn't change anything. Before we carry on with the angels, that's a bit of an aside. There's an intriguing verse in, in Hebrews um, which says, <clears throat> Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing it. I don't understand that verse. Do you pra practice hospitality? Perhaps you're doing more than you realise. I just leave that thought with you. But I said earlier that there were two parts to, to this angel's message. If the first part was one of encouragement, then the second part was this unborn child of God would become the saviour of the world. And this is stronger than encouragement. This is life-changing. I'm sure you know this, but Jesus comes from the name Joshua, meaning the Lord saves. Now, in my time, I've taught dozens and dozens of Joshuas, but none of them have ever made that claim. But what, what does it mean? Why, why do we need a saviour if we're not in trouble? Many people are fit, well and comfortably off and think they have no need for a saviour. Okay, some people clearly are in trouble, but white, middle class, comfortably, well off Wilton, where does that apply? I would suggest that the main trouble in our world is not violence, corruption or immorality, but the main trouble in the world is us and the sin in our lives. I didn't read it myself, but apparently several years ago there was a lengthy correspondence in the, the Times or Telegraph in which people for weeks would um, write in explaining what they thought was wrong with the world. And in the end, one person, a Christian, wrote in the shortest letter going, two words. It said, I am. 
If I were to ask you to, to raise your hands, if your, your, your parents or your, your church leaders had taught you how to sin, then I don't think many hands would go up. Not many people teach us how to sin. But these tendencies are within us all the time. Keith said earlier, it's easy-ish to be a Christian on a Sunday. It's harder as the week goes on, isn't it? I think the theological term for this is original sin. And that's why we need a saviour. That's why fit, well, comfortably off people need a saviour. And that's why Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And it took a unique baby to be born for this purpose. And how does this happen? The answer is clear. In Acts, we read, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, we'll sing it in a few minutes, but Charles Wesley got it spot on when he wrote Hark the Herald Angel Sings. Four lines only. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Worded in a slightly old-fashioned way, absolutely. But Charles Wesley recognised that the world needed a saviour, and this saviour was born. Not only was this saviour born, but this wouldn't have happened unless Joseph had listened and responded to this message from the angel. The story of Christmas, of course, doesn't end there. It ends roughly 33 years later, or perhaps it's still going on really nowadays. In our 21st century uh, culture, we tend to compartmentalise Christmas into that period from um, the 1st of December, or maybe the 1st of August, I'm not sure, to, to, to 25th of December. But that's only part of the story. Jesus was born to die. Only by his death on the cross could we know forgiveness of sins. And only Jesus could die in our place, as he was the only one to live a sinless life. I asked a moment ago why we needed a saviour if we aren't in trouble. Well, we are in trouble, all of us, and that's why we need a saviour. The second message to the angel is clear. Jesus was born with a purpose and destiny to offer salvation to people for their sins. And I, for one, am very grateful that Joseph listened to God's angel and did as he was told. So, the gift of Jesus... What have we done? We looked at Joseph and the gift of not really being up there in the limelight, but being a bit in, in the background. We did a little back, bit of background research on Joseph and his family, and we learned some key things from his life. That he was a righteous man, but that did not exclude him from suffering. And he did as he was told. We then reminded ourselves that what we know about angels before considering the two important messages from this angel. A message of encouragement for Joseph and us and the news that Jesus would offer, offer the opportunity for people to be saved from their sins. The most amazing gift ever. Amen and thank you for listening. <laughs>